So Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. Um, go ahead, once you're open there, go ahead and stand. We're going to read together um, as we just uh, set our hearts in order for uh, the passage that we're going to cover uh, this morning. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We're going to wrap up this chapter here today. Mark writes, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be least, or must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Go ahead and see. Let's pray as we Think about all that's in store for us here this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege to be here again this morning. I know for a lot of us, we're tired. It's been long nights and a lot of fun, but um, Lord, we do want to give you our best in the next 45 minutes that we have together. We want to uh, learn. We want to better understand uh, both the warnings and the blessings that you are setting before us. Uh, in this passage to better understand what it looks like to follow you. Um, we live in such a, a competitive culture. We live in a world where um, self-advancement is it's king in many ways. And we just come face to face with the reality that uh, Jesus' kingdom is countercultural from the one that we live in. And so I pray that you would give us humble hearts as we seek to better understand, better seek to worship you in response to it. So um, give us uh, wisdom, 
Give us peace. Give us your, your grace this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Ludwig Mies van der Rohe? Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. I'm probably saying that wrong, but this is what happens when you have five names. Anybody ever heard of him? Blake, you've heard of him. Yeah, Blake, who is he? And you can correct me. What's the proper pronunciation? Did I really? Oh, yes. I think you're just being nice. I don't know what you're doing, but go ahead. Who is he? He is. He is a famous architect. Uh, do you know any of his famous works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a, a German-born architect who moved to the U.S. actually after the rise of uh, uh, the Nazi party in uh, Germany. So he escaped that. He came here, and he actually accepted a position as the head of the architectural school, what is known today as the Illinois Institute of Technology. And he kind of wanted to develop his own style of architecture that was clean and simple, making good use of modern materials like steel and plate glass. Uh, the goal was to really have kind of a, a minimal framework that supported kind of a, a free-flowing open space that was very functional but still looked good. So his work was very simple yet elegant, as you can maybe see from some of these pictures. In fact, like, what was the one you mentioned, Crown Hall? That's that one on the right, yeah, right there, and uh, that's in Chicago. Uh, some of the work here, this is in Toronto, New York City, so all of this is inspired by uh, this gentleman, some of these things are like, well, it looks like a pretty simple skyscraper that you'd see in uh, cities, but you know, back, back then that was not necessarily the, the norm, and so he really uh, kind of brought these ideas to the forefront. And the simplicity of his style made him the champion uh, of the phrase, he didn't invent it, it actually came from a, a famous poem in the 1800s, but he was really kind of the champion of the phrase, less is more. Less is more. Again, the idea was that you don't overdo things. You keep things simple yet beautiful that sometimes uh, less is actually more beneficial because so often we try to maybe clutter space by adding more to it. We try to uh, do more work than maybe what is necessary. Um, it's always tempting to want to add more whereas the idea is that really less is more. But the phrase does have its merits, and I believe that we can see it on display in our passage this morning, because I think what Jesus is kind of bringing to the forefront of uh, what it really means to be a disciple is this idea that less is more. But the less is very important for us to understand, because the less has to do with us. It has to do with us. It's a real shot to our pride, which is exactly the point. I think what Mark wants to drive home in the passage we're looking at here this morning is that the less you think about yourself, the more you look like Jesus. The less you think of yourself, the more you actually begin to look like and resemble the heart of the one you're trying to follow, which is Jesus himself. The problem that's at play in this story is not 
the Pharisees. The, the problem is not somebody who needs to be healed of, of blindness or, or lameness or, or deafness, somebody who doesn't need to be ridded of a demon. No, none of those things are a problem like they have been so often in the Gospel of Mark. The real problem in this story is pride. The real problem is pride. There's a concern that is existing here amongst the disciples. There's an argument brewing and an underlying attitude that they have developed over time uh, of really trying to seek out which of them is the greatest. Which of them is most important. But what does it actually mean to be great? What does it actually mean to be great? Jesus is trying to expose that for them and try to help them understand what does true greatness as a disciple actually look like. And so Jesus is going to take them back to Discipleship 101 and show them what following him is all about. And so we're going to look at this passage from two different perspectives this morning, kind of divide it up in a way that we're not used to doing. But I want to basically look at it through one lens, go through all 20 verses kind of from one perspective, and then look at it through another. And so I want to begin with the warning. I want to begin with Jesus' kind of critique of the disciples and their mindset here. And so we're going to begin with the warning, which is the enemy of a great disciple. The enemy of a great disciple, which is, not surprisingly... Your pride. The real enemy at play here is not what is outside of us, but what actually is inside of us. Now, when I say pride, what, what comes to your mind? What do we actually mean when we say um, pride? Because this is kind of a word we use in church a lot, but even as I was uh, thinking about it this morning, I was like, how do, how do we define pride? What are, what are some ways you think about what pride is? What do you think? Give it a, give it a shot. Yeah. Okay, being selfish. I like that. Okay. So that's a particular manifestation of it, absolutely. So to be selfish, right? Maybe we even say self-centered. Okay, what else? Anything? Kind of mind when I think about what pride is. Yeah, kind of even at the heart of what the disciples are, right, here. Like, thinking uh, of yourself as better than others, right? So almost any definition that I could think of this morning uh, had to do with self at the center. You could think of uh, self-interest, self-advancement, self-glorification, uh, right? So there is a, a tendency to think more highly of self than you do of anything or anyone else, right? So it's when you try to uh, put yourself, advance yourself more highly than you should. And so Jesus is here saying that, listen, that type of attitude, that type of thinking is at the heart of the battle of following him. It's constantly a war really with not just the enemy, but really with yourself. And so how do we see that on display in this story? Well, 
I think we see that if we look carefully in the first movement here, uh, pride is what actually blinds you from seeing Jesus as you should. Look back at verses 30 to 32. What was Jesus doing here? This is the second time that he has uh, been talking to his disciples about what the role of the Christ is, the role of the Messiah is. The role of the Messiah is one who's going to come and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to his enemy. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die, right? And this is, this is counter uh, thinking to the disciples. This is not what they envisioned the Messiah, the, the, the Savior doing. And notice that they every time they hear this, they kind of forget about the last part where it says that, uh, where he tells them, hey, after three days, he's going to rise again. Because everything else was so contrary to their thinking that they couldn't even fathom the last part that he would even rise from the grave again. And so it blinds them, right? It's a, he, he's telling them this, but notice verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Notice they didn't understand, and they didn't want to even ask him about it. Perhaps, I mean, think about it. What happened the last time he told them about his new role as the Messiah? Peter comes over, and he's like, no, 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 Jesus, that's, you got it all wrong. Listen, I know you... This is, this is what the Messiah is actually supposed to do, and what does Jesus do to him? Kind of gives him a, a public rebuking, doesn't it, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. The way, the way that you're thinking is in line with my enemy, the, the devil. This is what he wants, right? right? So perhaps they're not speaking up because they're like, well, the last time we asked questions or we raised concerns about this, we got scolded. But there's also probably a very real sense in which they're worried about Knowing and understanding this more means that if their master is going into such a fate, what does that mean for them? Right? And so it's almost like a don't ask, you know, don't tell. Ignorance is bliss. They're just not getting it. Spiritual blindness, again, has been a constant threat for these people viewing Jesus as they should, and it is for us as well. So often, our pride and our understanding of things is what hinders us from really being able to accept Jesus for who he is. We're going to talk about how the right attitude will combat this in a little bit, but this kind of circles back to what they've been struggling with for a while, is just not understanding Jesus clearly. But this is also the type of pride that uh, resists the posture of humble servanthood. It resists the posture of humble Servanthood. This is where this story gets really interesting, and this is where we really start to see what's at play with kind of this whole movement in Mark's gospel here. Notice that it says that they've been traveling, they've been coming back from the northern, uh, some of the most northern regions of Israel, and they're now gravitating and moving back towards the Sea of Galilee to the kind of the home base region where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. And they even go into Capernaum, which is where really was kind of like his, his kind of main hub where he began his ministry. He's been performing lots of his miracles. This was kind of like the sweet spot. And it says that they entered the home, which is probably Peter's home. We've talked about this before, the place where he uh, healed uh, his, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, it's kind of like his home base of, of operations there. But here we learn that their silence towards Jesus along the way did not mean that they were not talking. 
Um, in fact, they were far from silent. And Jesus knew that they had been talking. They had been discussing with one another. And so he asked them, not because he didn't know what they were saying, but because he wanted to draw out what it was that they were discussing amongst one another. I love this, right? Verse 34, they kept silent. They didn't want to tell Jesus what they had been talking about. Why not? Because they were ashamed of what they were talking about. And it wasn't so much that they were just having a friendly discussion. They were having an argument. What's the argument? Which of them is the greatest? Which of them is the greatest? Think about this for just a moment. Jesus had just shared with his disciples about his impending death, the fact that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to die. And the very next thing the disciples are doing is they're concerned about who gets to be first place in line. Right? You, you've probably seen this before. You probably were that kid, right, in elementary school who was complaining to the teacher, Teacher! They took my spot in line! I was first! I was first! You know that. And guess what? That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is talking about his impending death. They're worried about who gets to be which place in line. Who gets the best seats. Jesus' question pierces them like a parent asking a child a question that exposes them that they already know the answer to, right? Did you just hate your brother? The head falls, silence, because you know you've been caught and you know you're guilty. Pride seeks to be great. Pride seeks to be great. It seeks to be the best at whatever it does. Saw this on display at our kitchen table this morning with two little girls who were trying to see who is the better one at hiding the rock in one hand and, and tricking, like, which one is it? Which one is it? And trying to guess which one the rock was in. In fact, I remember hearing from one of their mouths, I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but after getting like three in a row correct, man, why am I so good at this? <laughs> like, oh, this is our lesson today. Oh, oh, bless your heart. We desire to be the best athlete. We desire to be the better storyteller. We better want to be the better students. And guess what? It shows up in our spiritual lives as well. We want to be the person who's got uh, more credibility with the church. There's all kinds of ways that this manifests itself. It resists the idea of actually putting itself in the posture of service and servanthood because, guess what? That doesn't serve the personal agenda. If my idea is to be above people, how does putting myself below them and actually helping them help me? And so we can see how pride is all about making a name for yourself, but not necessarily about Jesus. And here you have the disciples in a very blunt and very telling way. And we, we can say to ourselves, man, that's so petty. And yet, 
honestly, do we, do we not do similar things like this? We certainly do. And so Jesus wants to even give an example of this. He will uh, a little bit later on. But uh, we're going to see how this type of attitude of superiority shows up in the next movement where we see that pride judges those who don't do things your way. Pride judges those who don't do things the way that you would do them. Where do we see that? Here, look at verses uh, 38 to 41. I'm sorry, not 38. uh, Yeah, yeah, 38. Look at verse 38. John, in response to Jesus here, John uh, says to him, Teacher, uh, we saw someone who was casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's kind of an interesting story here because the disciples' concern, and it's kind of interesting, John is not usually the one who speaks up, and yet John is the one here. He's very concerned about this. And his concern was that this individual who was not in this most immediate following of Jesus' disciples, this man was, it wasn't that he was just doing miracles. It's that this man, the emphasis in this line here is that he was not following us. He, he was not among our group. He was not uh, with us. He was not following in line with us. And it's kind of ironic because... Do you guys remember last week? What was, the, what was it that the disciples were failing to do on their own and in their own strength? What were they trying to do? Trying to cast out demons. And so it's so funny because it's like now they're preventing people who are actually doing so to help people in Jesus' name. And they're like, well, they're not following us. And it's like, well, you guys aren't even doing it yourselves. Your, your, your pride is already getting in the way of you being able to do this well. And so there's so much irony that's dripping from this statement here. But this is, this is a pride that says, we're the true following. We're the ones who are doing things the right way. You need to get in line and, and know your place. And, and that might sound harsh. But again, as Christians, we're still susceptible to the same types of criticisms of others. I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I, I got to believe that this, this happens. But sometimes we judge people because, or we think more highly of ourselves because, man, we go to Newcastle Bible Church. We have an awesome youth ministry. Your church doesn't have an awesome youth ministry like ours. Oh, you go to that church? Ah, sorry. Sorry about that. Or maybe your church does things differently than ours. Well, that's too bad. Or you make assumptions about their beliefs based on their denomination or who they are. And I, I, I admit there are ways that I've been guilty of this. This was convicting for me this week thinking about that. Right? There are ways that we... In our pride, judge those who don't do things our way because we think that we have a corner on how things should be done. Or we have a corner on how things should be uh, believed or what we should do, right? There's all kinds of ways that this might manifest itself. But pride gets very ugly like this because it starts to belittle those who are doing and really serving the Lord well. All because of our pride. All because we think we have the right answers. 
And if that's not enough, we see that pride is also that which hinders unity among God's people. Jesus is obviously very concerned for his disciples. He gets into to teaching them uh, a little bit more. He'll, we'll, we'll follow up on some of his responses in each of these places. But notice in verse 42, he's continuing some of his teaching here. But he says to his disciples, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You're like, whoa, Jesus, that sounds like gangster mafia type stuff. Like, that's, that's dark. And it's like, well, that's how seriously Jesus takes this. Jesus is not playing games when he's talking about the desire for God's people to strive for unity. And the reason that unity often is broken or it's hindered is because our pride gets in the way. And we are not willing to humble ourselves. Right? So much of what Jesus is going to talk about here in verses 43 to 48 kind of talk about uh, the radical approach to dealing with sin. And I don't know that he's necessarily just talking about personal sin like the things that are going on in your individual life. I think that that's true. But I think, again, his concern is that you are intentionally or you are uh, maybe in your pride unintentionally and naively causing other people to stumble and sin. When he says these little ones, he's not talking about necessarily little children. He uses little children in this section as kind of an illustration, but he's talking about just the most... Uh, vulnerable, the weakest, the mo- just anybody who is a child of God to live your life in such a way that says, I'm going to do whatever I want and you're going to put stumbling blocks before your other Christian friends or Christians in your school. That's pride. That's dangerous. And Jesus says, if that's your attitude, if that's the way that you're pursuing your Christian life, listen, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the ocean. He's like, there's just no place for this. There's no place for this. And so all this ugly, right? Like, look back through this, right? Pride blinds you from seeing Jesus. It resists the posture of humble servanthood. It judges those who do things differently. And it hinders unity among God's people. You're like, that's a pretty ugly list. And I want you to, as, as weird as it sounds, I want you to be encouraged because even guys who have been following Jesus for more than a year were still wrestling with these things. That's the reason he's talking about this. And he's warning them, saying, listen, I understand that there's going to be a temptation towards this, but this is not the way. So you ask yourself, what is in the way? Well, the way that he's calling us to now is that the true uh, attitude of great discipleship, of a great disciple, is humility. But not just any type of humility. It's the type of humility that resembles Jesus and his humility. Remember, our main point this morning is what? The less you think of yourself, the more you look like Jesus. And you're like, I don't really know where that idea comes from. Well, take a moment. Turn over to Philippians real quick. Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2. If you're ever wondering what, what in the world, like where does this idea come from? Well, I got it this week from Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? Look at verse 3. This is kind of getting to the heart of what we talked about. This is actually where I kind of got that idea for what is, what is pride. Well, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right? So basically self-interest, self-ambition, selfishness, right? All of those go into what it is to be prideful. This is Paul writing to the Philippian church, and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather what? In what? Humility. In other words, in the attitude of humility, count others more significant than yourself. I'm going to read that again just because that that needs to, to fall on our ears this morning. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You're like, how in the world do I do this? What's the model of this? Well, verse 5. Have this mind. So in other words, he's calling you to a mindset. He's calling you to a heart attitude, a posture of how you live your life. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In other words, you have full access to this already. It is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have this exact posture that he is calling you to. How do we know? What type of humility is this? It's sacrificial humility. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is exactly what Jesus is pointing them to at the very beginning of this passage, isn't it? Right? Because when you adopt this type of attitude, when you adopt this type of humility... It opens your eyes to see Jesus and his sacrificial work. You start to see that what Jesus is about to do is actually what he is calling you to do. Obviously, he's not calling you to personally go and die on the cross for other people's sins because you cannot do that. But he's calling you to live a life of sacrificial service for the good of others. And it begins by looking to Jesus. The very nature of his ministry was sacrificial, always working for the eternal good of other people. He was constantly, think about this, he was constantly inconvenienced. I hate being inconvenienced. He was constantly inconvenienced. He was constantly teaching. He was constantly healing. He was constantly traveling. All for other people. None of it for his own personal benefit. Why? 
because he did nothing from selfish ambition and because he always looked out for the interests of others. Student, you will never grasp what it means to follow Jesus until you come to grips with the sacrificial nature of his life and ministry. Until you understand that Philippians 2 attitude that he's calling you to, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. So this type of humility opens our eyes to see Jesus and his sacrificial work. But it also helps us embrace that position of a joyful servant, right? That's what he's calling the disciples to. After exposing them for this ridiculous conversation, this ridiculous argument they were having on the road as they were traveling, Jesus then brings them together. Look at, look at what it says here in verses 35 to 37. I, I love what he does here because notice he asks them what they were talking about, but they don't say anything. Jesus knew what they were talking about. He knew what they were arguing about, and he doesn't even bring it up. Notice what he does. He just says in verse 35, he doesn't even say it. He just says, he sat down and he called the twelve. Okay, guys, huddle up, right? Everybody take a knee. We, we need to have a family powwow here to, to understand what you were just disputing amongst yourselves. And this is where he really gives the, the revolutionary mindset of what it means to be great as a disciple. He's like, listen, you guys are arguing amongst one another about what does a great disciple look like? You want to you be the greatest in the kingdom, Guess what? Today's your lucky day. I am going to tell you exactly how to do that. See, I'm like rubbing their hands like, oh man, awesome. Is he going to tell us like who is? And he says this. If any of you would be first, which they're probably like, yes, yes, that's what I want. I want to be first, right? If any of you would be first, he must be last. Must be last. And... He must be servant of everyone. Do you want to be great in my kingdom? You got to start low. You got to stay low. You got to continue low. Far from what the disciples had imagined, very far from what anything in their culture would have taught them. And honestly, it's far from anything that we learn about in our culture today. And if that's not stark enough, he puts a child before them as an example. Grabs a, a little child, he, he puts them in, in the midst of the disciples. For all we know, this could have been one of Peter's children or somebody who's you know related to the family. Sets them right before them. And here's what you have to understand, and this might rub you the wrong way, and I don't mean it to, but like children in that society were not viewed exceedingly high. They were needy. They were not uh, well embraced. They were, <laughs> let's just put it this way. Children are not going to help you get ahead in life, right? So Jesus is using this child as an example of the most lowly and insignificant in society. And he says to them, whoever receives and welcomes one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives me, not just me, but he who sent me. In other words, he's saying, as a Christian, 
You are called to receive and to welcome all without distinction. All without distinction. It means you don't pay attention to family status or school district or social interests. That's not your end-all be-all. You are a servant of all, no matter who they are or where they come from. And they're not just your means of trying to get ahead. It's a call for you to receive and serve all as a joyful servant. Not just a servant, but a joyful servant, knowing that this is what the will of your Father in heaven is. Not just embracing the position of a joyful servant, it's also this attitude that receives those who love the Lord. It's not a competitive spirit. You know, he tells his disciples in response to this guy who is casting out demons, he says, listen, don't stop this guy, right? Don't stop such men, for no one can do such thing in my name if he does not truly belong to me. He can't turn around and then curse me all of a sudden and as if, like, he doesn't actually have a genuine relationship with me, right? This guy is legit. Verse 40 is Jesus' way of saying, don't work against those who are on our side. Guys, we're on the same team here. We are not the only ones who have this. It's, it's really a resisting of a competitive uh, mindset. Do you remember in John chapter 3, John's disciples, because, uh, John, sorry, back up. John chapter 3, John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist early on, he had followers. He had disciples, people that he was training up. And do you remember when Jesus started to come onto the scene? What did John's disciples say to John the Baptist? Were they excited that Jesus was coming onto the scene? I see a head shaking. Why not? What were they saying to him? Do you remember? Yeah, they didn't like it. They were like, this is, this is totally the same situation. They're, they're like, John, listen, there's this guy, Jesus, on the other side of the Jordan. And a bunch of people are going to follow him. And he's baptizing a bunch of them. People are leaving us. And John the Baptist, I love it. He just almost like laughs at him like, guys, didn't I tell you this was the plan? I myself told you I am not the Christ. I don't have any ownership on you. In fact, my purpose is to point to him. It's a jealousy mindset that, that is common amongst people. And he's saying, this is not the way. Verse 41, no act of kindness, even the simple offer of a cup of water is too small in God's eyes to contribute towards this loving embrace for those who love the Lord. No matter who they are or how different they may be, if they genuinely love the Lord, they are your spiritual family. We've got to keep moving here. Last point. Of this section. This attitude of humility strives for the eternal good of others. I'm going to fast forward to verse 50 where Jesus, I think, everything from verses 42 to 50, I think, is summed up with the very end of what he says in verse 50 where he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Right? This is, this is, this is exactly what you were striving for. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples the night of uh, his betrayal, uh, that he was going to be arrested. So later on, he would tell them, listen, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. 
One of the greatest witnessing tools to the world that you truly belong to God is your love and your unity amongst other Christians. He is saying, have this salt, have this preservative effect in your lives that seeks to be at peace with one another. Because the moment that your pride starts to get in the way, your feelings start to get hurt, and you start to divide every which direction, you are going to bring shame, you're going to bring mockery and a disgrace to what we're trying to do here. Right? Christ has come to reconcile the world to one another, and here you are trying to pull it apart because you can't get along. great disciple who embraces the attitude of sacrificial humility like Jesus strives for the eternal good of others because that's exactly what Christ did when he came and gave his life as a ransom for many. And so as we walk away from this this morning, there's a couple of big points that we need to just kind of end on here tonight as we, uh, this morning as we sum this all up. The first of which is this. Going back to John chapter 3. Jesus must increase and you must decrease. If there is any verse that you should commit to memory as like a life verse of what it means to follow Jesus, you need to memorize John 3.30. And again, this is the exact same context that I was just talking about where John's disciples are like, John, look, people are following Jesus. Uh, We need to do something. And what is John's response? In the midst of everything he says, he kind of sums it up in John 3, 30, where he says, listen, he must increase and I must decrease. This whole following Jesus and doing ministry for Jesus thing, it's not about me. My goal is to make Jesus look good. My job is to make Jesus look bigger and brighter in my life and not point the finger at myself. If my ministry is all about making a name for myself so that more people see me, I get more accolades, I do things for my own honor, I've missed the boat. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Less is more. Secondly, Jesus cares deeply about how you treat his people. We could go on and on about this here. We talked about it in verse 42 where he talks about the seriousness of you causing other people to stumble. He cares very deeply about the unity amongst people, right? There's some very serious language that he's using here. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But you cannot walk away from this section thinking... I wonder how Jesus feels about how we treat other people who are in his his family. No, the language he uses is strong and is stark. He cares deeply. Cares deeply. And he cares deeply so much that he calls you to radically deal with sin in your life that might cause other people to stumble. That's why we could say here that the battle against sin is serious. You know, like that sounds pretty cheesy. And it's like, well, Jesus is pretty serious about it. So much so that he's saying, listen, it would be better for you to cut off a hand, cut off a foot, cut out an eye, and go into eternity with 
missing some of those parts of your body than it would for you to go into hell because you didn't deal with sin the way you should have. Because to do so reveals that you weren't really following Christ because you were more concerned about yourself and indulging in your own self-worship and your own self-gratification than you were about Jesus. Because pride, student, pride does not want to deal with sin. Pride's not bothered by sin. Jesus is saying, listen, it would be better for you to take off these members of your body if they are causing you to sin. Now, again, he's not literally calling for you to do that, right? This is metaphorically speaking. He's saying this is the radical approach you need to take to it. If there is a temptation in your life or it is something that is causing you to sin and then causing others to stumble, you need to deal with it. You need to go and reconcile that now. Don't delay. It would be better for you to do that than for you to find out that you missed the boat. Your actual eternity is in hell. And the, the word that he uses for hell here is this word Gehenna. It was a, a Jewish word, actually, that referenced a real place in the Jewish, uh, in, in Israel. So uh, to the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem, there was this really steep ravine. Um, in the Old Testament times, some of the really wicked kings of Israel would actually use that as like a, a place for like uh, pagan sacrifice and not just pagan sacrifice. They would actually use it for like child sacrifices. It was a horrible place. And when some of the, the more righteous kings came along, they took that place and they, they turned it into a dump, right? They're like, this is not going to be used as a place of sacrifice. This is going to be a place where garbage and, and sewage, everything's going to be dumped and it's going to be burned there. Right? And that's the actual language that's used for hell. So it references this place as like an illustration of this is how serious this is. This is a horrific type of place. Nobody would want to go there. You certainly wouldn't want to. He's calling for you, take radical approach to your sin, lest you find out that that actually is your eternal destiny. Finally, your life is a living sacrifice to God. Verse 49 is kind of a really weird and difficult verse, and there's commentators who spill pages over what this actually means. For everyone will be salted with fire. You're like, what in the world? I think one of the best guesses that this is referring to is something that's talked about in Leviticus chapter 2, where uh, Moses writes that all Israelite sacrifices were accompanied by salt. Salt, again, was like a preservative. Salt was a seasoning. Uh, salt kind of has this uh, permeating effect. And again, the, the context of everything he's talking about here, I think he's talking about how fire and salt seem to be symbols of sacrificial living. Goes to what Paul talks about in Romans 12, 2, where he says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Following Jesus lays total claim on your life. If I could put it another way, to follow Jesus is all-consuming. It requires all of who you are. Everything you do is called to be a sacrifice, an offering of worship to God. I don't know about you, but that, that, fights, that fights against human pride, doesn't it? That's, 
That is the, the exact nature of what it is to humbly lay down your life because that's really what Jesus said it is to be a disciple, right? We'll end with what he talked about back in Mark chapter 8 where he says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. And then, only then, can he follow me. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for, again, this morning, thank you for uh, just putting before us a really necessary passage in the midst of a world that we live in where so much of who we are and what we're being taught and being indoctrinated by is really about self-exaltation. It's about making much of ourselves and making a name for ourselves. Uh, but Lord, we, we just recognize that to be your follower is so radically different. Lord, this humbling that you're calling us to is something so much bigger and more powerful than anything that we can do on our own. And so we would just ask this morning that you yourself would humble our hearts, uh, that you would expose to us sin where it's necessary, that you would expose to us jealousy or pride or selfish ambition, ways that maybe we have uh, created uh, disunity and division amongst friends, whatever it may be, reveal that to us this morning so that, Lord, you might humble us and help us to work towards reconciliation, putting sin to death, and a more unified spirit, Lord, that seeks to make much of you. For you must increase and we must decrease for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.